In February of 1964, an 8-year-old kid named Larry resided in the predominantly Jewish Long Island town of North Woodmere, New York. Before that month, though certainly a kid that enjoyed a catchy tune, Larry probably wouldn't have called himself an ardent music fan. In those days, he did have access to a radio, but only two stations existed, and they were both AM. His relationship with music all changed one night that month upon sitting with his family to watch The Ed Sullivan Show. He watched, for the first time, English rock and roll band The Beatles perform. The band's performances of their hit singles, Close Your Eyes and She Loves You, captivated the young boy, whose response to the music he could only describe as euphoric. Those songs formed an emotional connection with him that he had never experienced previously with music. His brother Lenny, who watched with him, enjoyed the British Quartet as well, and consequently bought their record Meet the Beatles on vinyl. Larry remembers flipping over that vinyl and hearing the classics, I saw her standing there, and I want to hold your hand. This band made him listen to the radio more intentionally, and ultimately get his hands on records from other artists, such as the Dave Clark Five, the Bee Gees, the Turtles, and Herman's Hermits. But Beatlemania affected his childhood far beyond the music. Larry recalls seeing a kid on his school bus wearing a wig to mimic the hair of the, be- of the members of the Beatles. Although seeing men with long hair was unprecedented for him, his strong admiration for the band prompted him to take his, his own hair resting behind his ears and place it over his ears to bring his appearance closer to that of his favorite band. To Larry, the Beatles weren't mere humans. They were his heroes, godlike. They were new, fresh, and inspiring. Any time any person said the name John, Paul, George, and Ringo in the same sentence, he knew exactly that the Beatles, the best of the best of the best, were being discussed. In 2023, Larry now lives in the suburbs of Orlando, Florida. Most people know him as Dr. Brenner. His wife calls him Lair, but I, of course, know him as Dad. Growing up, my dad shared with my siblings and I his love for the Beatles, playing their greatest hits during any road trip in which my mother let him control the stereo. Through his stories, the Beatles became godlike to us as well. When I was eight years old, the music industry had changed to the extent that a band of the magnitude of the Beatles probably could not exist. However, there was one godlike band whose love I had for them resembled the fandom my dad had for the Beatles at that age. One band that everyone in my third grade class discussed. We relished, we relished in each hit, each video, and each move. They were the coolest older brothers that represented everything about life we had to look forward to. As my dad had John, Paul, George, and Ringo, we had Mark, Tom, and Travis. I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s Stan. I want to apologize for the delay in between episodes. Life has a habit of getting in the way of things sometimes. Anyways, today I will be discussing our second forgotten album, the 2011 comeback album, Neighborhoods, by Blink-182.
on February 9, 2009, Tom DeLong, Mark Hoppus, and Travis Barker, whose arm was notably situated in a cast, awkwardly announced to the world at the 51st Annual Grammy Awards that they suspended their hiatus and the pop-punk legends Blink-182 were back. The band spent most of 2009 on their reunion tour and spent most of 2010 separately in the studio. Then on September 27, 2011, Blink-182 released their first album in eight years, Neighborhoods. Despite peaking higher on the Billboard Hot 200 than their previous record and receiving positive reviews from critics, the album ultimately sold far fewer copies than, on, than not only the previous album, but than any album since their debut, Cheshire Cat. So, if critics generally enjoy the album and hype surrounded the record's release due to the anticipation of Blink-182's first post-hiatus effort, it begs the questions of why did it undersell so much? possess such less significance in terms of streaming, avoid the success on the singles charts that the band had previously enjoyed, and, to put it plainly, become a forgotten album. In my humble opinion, to understand the album's lackluster legacy, we have to understand Neighborhood's predecessor, titled Blink-182, but often referred to as Untitled. And to understand that record, we have to hearken back to March 14, 2000, when Blink-182 released a single that kind of came out of nowhere. I say it kind of came out of nowhere due to the endearingly immature lyrics of the band's hit singles up to that point. In Damn It, their 1997 breakout hit, perhaps the most memorable lines occur in the beginning of the second verse with, quote, The steps that I retrace, the sad look on your face, the timing and structure, did you hear? He fucked her. What's My Age Again, which served as the lead single from Blink-182's crossover album Enema of the State, that name also very silly, provided a clinic on how to appeal to the masses with sophomoric humor and an overall message the youth can get behind. Throughout the song, Hoppus shares humorous stories depicting his presumably fictional immaturity. In the first stanza and chorus, he describes a romantic encounter in which his desire to watch TV interrupts the sexual advances of his date resulted in him not getting laid. We find silly lyrics throughout the story. For example, quote, We started making out, and she took off my pants, but then I turned on the TV. And that's about the time she walked away from me. Nobody likes you when you're 23. Hoppus' second verse and chorus communicates a separate story, albeit on the same timeline. While heading home from his date, he prank calls the mother of the woman he turned the TV on. He impersonates a police officer, claiming that her husband had been arrested. In this story, Hoppus fails to convince the mother, giving way to the peak immaturity of the second story with him exclaiming in the chorus, quote, And that's about the time that bitch hung up on me. Nobody likes you when you're 23 and are still more amused by prank phone calls. What the hell is call ID? At the end of the song, instead of reckoning with the consequences of his childishness, Hoppus proudly takes ownership of his callowness, singing, quote, No one should take themselves so seriously, with many years ahead to fall in line. Why would you wish that on me? I never want to act my age. What's my age again? What's my age again? Apparently, these poetically crafted tales struck a chord with the youth of middle America, as What's My Age Again hit number 58 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 2 on the rock charts, easily eclipsing Dammit as their most successful song of their career. 
That status as their biggest hit didn't last too long. Moving into the new millennium, All the Small Things, the second single from Enema of the State, peaked at number 6 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 1 on the rock charts. To date, it's not only Blink-182's most successful single, but perhaps one of the most successful singles in the history of pop punk. Like its predecessors, All the Small Things galvanized the youth through its musical simplicity, melodic catchiness, and lyrical immaturity. While maybe not as juvenile as What's My Age Again, the song gave the kids of my generation the license to rebelliously sing the famous line from the second verse, quote, Late night, come home, work sucks, I know. Emphasizing, obviously, the word sucks. Of course, we exclusively sang that line when our parents weren't in the room. Blink-182 gets a little silly again in the choruses, with DeLong singing the nonsensical syllable, nah, a total of 40 times. Apparently, the Ramones inspired the lyric of the chorus, which makes this now the third time I've mentioned that legendary punk band on this podcast, and I promise you it won't be the last. Blink-182 made up for any adolescent humor lacking the lyrics with the music video, which featured the common late 90s slash early 2000s trope of poking fun at the boy bands and pop stars of the time, mocking the usual suspects in sync the Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, and Christina Aguilera. To consummate the presence of Silly, Mark Hoppus can be seen throughout in various sequences wearing nothing except whitey tidies and a sailor hat. So, with their first three major hits, it seemed the pop-punk trio was destined to maintain their sophomore ethos and live forever as the band that inspired you to shoot spitballs at your friends. However, less than a month after All the Small Things peaked at number 6 on the Billboard Hot 100, Blink-182 changed the trajectory of their entire career and what they stood for with the release of Enema of the State's third single, Adam's Song, which opens with the line, quote, I never thought I'd die alone. I laughed the loudest. Who'd have known? The song centers on the suicidal ideation of the narrator sung and written by Hoppus, who inches closer and closer throughout the song to ending his own life. In the beginning of the first verse, Hoppus hints at the idea. However, the second half of the first verse guides listeners to the crux of the overall theme by, refer- by referencing the Nirvana song, Come As You Are, with the lines, quote, I took my time, I hurried up, the choice was mine, I didn't think enough. This Nirvana illusion demonstrates Hoppus's surprising songwriting abilities. Following the suicide of Kurt Cobain in 1994, the chorus of Come As You Are with the repeated lyrics, quote, and I swear that I don't have a gun, became a sad irony given, given the method in which Cobain took his life. Thus, Hoppus's decision to allude to that particular song sets the tone for the morose second verse. Following the chorus in which Hoppus recounts the melancholy he felt returning home from the band's previous tour, his suicidal ideation increases as he shares muses, musings, common for people battling those demons, with lines, quote, Give all my things to all my friends. You'll never step foot in my room again. And, quote, Please tell mom this is not her fault. After the second chorus, the song contains a piano-heavy interlude, rare for the band at the time. The interlude ends with a series of crescendos, culminating with its final one featuring an epic Travis Barker drum fill leading into the explosive last chorus. The gargantuan end of the song transitions the tone to uplifting with a change from the past tense, 
utilized in the first two choruses to the future. For example, in the first two choruses, Hoppus sings, quote, 16 just held such better days. However, following the interlude, the lyrics change to, quote, tomorrow holds such better days. Additionally, in the first two choruses, he reminisces of, quote, days when I still felt alive. But in the final chorus, he looks forward to, quote, days when I can still feel alive. The song is undeniably a beautiful anti-suicide song. Forgive me for getting personal, but it's hard for me not to get emotional about this song, because in addition to losing a close friend from my adolescence to suicide while I was in college, it was Adam's song that introduced me to the tragic but real concept of a person taking their own life. The juxtaposition between the moods of this song and the previous singles from Enema of the State proved that both silly and somber could coexist in the catalog of Blink-182. Adam's song reached number two on the rock charts, and at the end of 2000, it ranked number seven on the year-end rock charts. 23 years later, with over 250 million plays on Spotify, the song remains among Blink-182's most popular with the fan base. On June 12, 2001, Carrying the Torch, as the world's premier pop-punk band, and pretty much rock's premier band, Blink-182 released Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, their follow-up to their five-times platinum crossover album. With the platform that the success of Enema of the State created, each member of the band felt ambitious. Hoppus wanted to take the ethos of that record and replicate it, albeit as a bigger, better, and louder record. Perhaps, emboldened by the critical and commercial success of Adam's song, DeLong wanted to capitalize on that momentum and make music that would help the band appear more serious. Furthermore, around that time, he listened heavily to post-hardcore bands such as Fugazi and Refused, wanting Take Off Your Pants and Jacket to draw influence from those artists. Barker, who before joining Blink had played for the comedy ska band The Aquabats, was listening to genres distinct from pop-punk, such as hip-hop and heavy metal. Therefore, the contrast in desired outcomes provided for difficulties in the writing and recording process, especially the latter. Barker recorded his drum parts before Hoppus or DeLong recorded anything, so when the two of them went into the studio, the differences in their approach led to a contentious experience. On the making of Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, Hoppus stated, quote, For the first time, three of us worked in opposition to one another. We weren't starting from the same point or working toward the same goal. Nonetheless, the three members put together a record that they felt good about. But when they showed the all-but-finished product to their manager, Rick DeVoe, he critiqued it, lamenting the lack of a all-the-small-things type hit, saying, quote, I don't hear that thing, that Blink-182 good-time-summer anthem thing. Both Hoppus and DeLong shared the same anger toward the comment that DeVoe made, but acquiesced, each individually crafting what they deemed would result as a pop hit. Those two songs, The Rock Show, written by Hoppus, and DeLong's First Date, perhaps two of the silliest songs of the album, satisfied DeVoe's wishes, as both songs became major hits, and to date, both rank in the band's top seven most streamed songs on Spotify, with over 187 million and 337 million plays, respectively. Writing the success of the album's predecessor in the previously mentioned single, The Rock Show, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 200. 
Musically, the album's first half follows the pop-punk flavor that dominated Enema of the State, perhaps with slightly increased dynamics. The second half of the record, starting off with Stay Together for the Kids, which we'll circle back to in a bit, showcased their musical, their musical maturation. On the 10th track, Every Time I Look for You, which arguably showcased their best dynamics up to that point in their discography, Blink-182 exemplified their compositional and instrumental development. Although it's a standard pop-punk tune, the rhythm and the melody and the explosive interlude that follows Hoppus's bass solo at around the two-minute mark not only ranks as one of the finest moments on the record, but foreshadows the album's successor. Lyrically, while on Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, the band opted not to expand too much on the maturity found on Adam's song, with the exception of Happy Holidays, You Bastard, which sounds like it was written by a group of 13-year-old boys, the band did make a concerted effort to avoid toilet humor and other cheap laughs in favor of more significant meaning. The best songs lyrically include the previously mentioned Every Time I Look For You, which, while yes, it does discuss the tired theme of teenage love, Hoppus's crafty word choice elevates the song's youthful spirit with the lines such as, quote, One more point of contention, I need some intervention, approach with vague intentions, betray my short attention. As well as, quote, Every time I look for you, the sun goes down, and I stumble when this whole thing runs aground. On the album's penultimate song, Shut Up, Hoppus utilizes heavy vulgarity to express the anger that a toxic couple possesses during their breakup. For example, the song opens from the woman's perspective with the line, quote, Shut the fuck up, she said. I'm going fucking deaf. You're always too loud. Everything's too loud. And even when cursing isn't present, scathing language prevails, such as the line, quote, Your life is meaningless. It's going nowhere. You're going nowhere. So it might seem counterintuitive that I chose this song as an example of their maturity as songwriters. But in discussing the heavy theme of a toxic relationship, Hoppus fearlessly, Hoppus's fearlessly blunt language communicates the story impeccably to listeners, all within an accessible musical framework. Saving the record's most potent discussion for last, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket's third single, Stay Together for the Kids, remains perhaps the most bleak within their discography. In it, Hoppus and DeLong express the experience of growing up during their respective parents' divorce. Gut-wrenching lines from the song include, quote, I'm right with things to say, the words rot and fall away. What stupid poem could fix this home? I'd read it every day. Those lines were from Mark Hoppus. Uh, on DeLong's side, he sings in the chorus, quote, So when you're dead and gone, will you remember this night, 20 years now lost? It's not right. The song inadvertently has a historical component to it. The original music video shot on September 9th and 10th of 2001 features a wrecking ball smashing a house to visually represent the term broken home. The production crew ultimately had to reshoot the video due to the similarity in image between the original and the September 11th attacks that occurred just a day later. Of all the songs off Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, Stay Together for the Kids parallels Adam's song most even including heavy use of the piano, as did Adam's song. Following the release and success of Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, the future of Link-182 seemed uncertain as Tom DeLong and Travis Barker formed a side project with guitarist David Kennedy called Boxcar Racer. 
The exclusion of Mark Hoppus from the project left him feeling, quote, weird, betrayed, jealous. Nonetheless, the band worked on their follow-up album with producer Jerry Finn, who had already worked with the band on their two previous albums, and whose pop-punk credentials ranked second to none, having worked with iconic acts within the subgenre such as Rancid, Green Day, Newfound Glory, The Offspring, Sum 41, and Alkaline Trio. The inspiration for the album seemed on brand for the trio, as the group rented out a mansion, smoked quite a bit of weed, and spent a ton of money on adult films. Fun fact, they got evicted from that mansion. Anyways, on November 17, 2003, they released their fifth studio album, titled Blink-182, though the band refuses to refer to the record as self-titled, instead insisting on the nickname of Untitled. Tom explained the reasoning of the band's preference to Billboard magazine upon the album's, album's release, stating, quote, Actually, the worst thing in the world that can happen is people think we are trying to make some big, bold statement. That's why we try to say it's not self-titled, it's just untitled. We didn't want to label it with anything. We didn't want to label it with a joke title that people might expect. Expect. We didn't want to label it with some serious phrase that the whole record would have to somehow relate to. We left it untitled so it would speak for itself. Let's get to the commercial success of the record and so we can get it out of the way. The album debuted at number 3 on the Billboard Hot 200, selling negligibly less than its predecessor in the first week. Untitled went on to sell over 2 million copies in the US and 7 million copies worldwide. The album spawned two mega-hits, the opening song Feeling This, which peaked at number 2 on the rock charts, and I Miss You, the album's third track, which to date remains the band's second most successful single on the charts, peaking at number 1 on the rock charts and number 42 on the Billboard Hot 100 singles chart. The band's two other singles from the album, Down and Always, found moderate success as well, with the former resulting in a top 10 spot on the rock charts in the summer of 2004. In terms of music, lyrics, and production, Untitled proclaimed Blink-182 as a changed band. The album still features a decent amount of their signature pop-punk sound on songs such as Here's Your Letter and Feeling This, but the heart of the record displays a diverse range of, range of genres, flavors, and textures. Untitled serves as a departure from their previous records, featuring multiple ballads, a more hardcore brand of punk for the gnarlier tunes, and elements of post-punk, new wave, hip-hop, and ethereal. In terms of production, Blink-182 experimented with non-instrumental sounds such as finger snaps in the fourth track, Violence, and NASA radio transmissions in the record's tenth track, Asthenia. They also include two standalone interludes, an unprecedented move for them. Perhaps leaving their comfort zone not only resulted in their longest album in terms of actual time, but also helped Blink-182 reach a level of concentration on untitled absent from its predecessors. That focus enabled what many view as a concept album. It's hard to ignore the frequency of songs detailing the trauma, pain, and mental instability stemming from the end of a relationship. Nine songs off Untitled center on the impending loss of love or already severed romantic partnership. While the other songs on the album explore different themes such as hopelessness, paranoia, maliciousness, and lust, after the opening track, Feeling This, the element of loss remains consistent throughout. Their 2003 effort saw Hoppus and DeLong take quantum leaps as songwriters. With sophomoric humor absent, Hoppus and DeLong build upon maturity displayed on Adam's song, Stay Together for the Kids, and Every Time I Look for You. For example, 
Hoppus, who went from singing on their debut LP, quote, my love life was getting so bland. There are, there are only so many ways I can make love with my hand. Sometimes it makes me want to laugh. Sometimes I want to take my toaster in the bath. To autobiographically telling the painful story of the domestic abuse his mother faced on Untitled's ninth track with the second verse reading, quote, Mom, get in the car and let's drive away. She said, I'm sorry, Mark, but there's nowhere to stay. Gave up all her hope and went back inside, hit her broken heart and let the engine die. DeLong, for his part, only a couple years prior, when reminiscing over his educational career, cried, quote, I learned a lot today. Not sure if I'll get laid. Not sure if I'll fail or passed. Kissed every girl in class. However, after the copious amount of pornos and weed, DeLong counterintuitively paints his stories on Untitled with a more mature brush. For example, in the second verse of the album's second song, DeLong sings about a bitter breakup, quote, can you comfort yourself with the sense of revenge? Are you leaving me here with the taste of the end? Critically, the band's artful transition received praise from Rolling Stone stating, quote, Maturity suits these guys. Five albums into their career, it sounds like they're just getting warmed up. Stephen Erlewine praised Hoppus and DeLong stating, quote, the songwriting is similarly adventurous, alternating punchy, impassioned punk pop with weirder atmospheric pieces. He also finished his review welcoming their, quote, maturation. Despite the commercial and critical success, on February 22, 2005, spurred by DeLong's chronic back pain and desire to spend more time with his family, disagreement regarding the future of the band led them to announce an indefinite hiatus, all but breaking up the pop-punk titans. New groups, Tragedy and Triumph, characterized Blink-182's four-year hiatus. In April of 2005, Hoppus announced that he and Barker, along with alternative rock guitarists Shane Gallagher and Craig Fairbo, formed a new group called Plus 44. If you view, as many do, a breakup as a competition, DeLong countered in September of that year, announcing the formation of his new band, Angels and Airwaves, recruiting three San Diego-based musicians. David Kennedy, Ryan Sin, and Adam Willard. On May 23, 2006, Angels and Airwaves released their first studio album, We Don't Need to Whisper. The album peaked at number 4 on the Billboard Hot 200 and went on to sell about 800,000 copies worldwide. The band released four singles to support the album, but only their lead single, The Adventure, approximated the success of any notable Blink-182 hit. The album generated mixed reviews from critics, garnering a lukewarm score of 53 out of 100 from Metacritic. In November of 2006, Plus 44 released their debut album, When Your Heart Stops Beating. The album chart performance lagged behind that of Angels and Airwaves, as the record barely cracked the top 10, and in When Your Heart Stops Beating's first five years, it managed to sell less than 300,000 copies. The album entertained critics only mildly with a 60 rating for Metacritic. Thus, fans and critics spoke loudly to Mark, Tom, and Travis. They basically said, We love y'all's musicians, but we love Blink better. Fast forward to September 19, 2008, a day where the music almost died once again. But music itself, and just about everything else, became irrelevant. 
That day, Travis Barker boarded a private jet in Columbia, South Carolina, along with his best friend, DJ AM, his personal assistant, Chris Baker, and his security guard, Charles Still. Upon takeoff, Barker heard a loud bang that sounded like gunshots. The pilots attempted to abort takeoff, but the lack of runway space led to them crashing onto a South Carolina highway. DJ AM and Barker managed to escape the plane. Covered in jet fuel, Barker removed his clothes and ultimately employed the stop, drop, and roll tactic taught in elementary school to effectively put out the fire that his body had endured. Still, 65% of his body had been burned, and everyone on the flight, including the pilots, died as a result of the crash, except for Barker and DJ AM. Barker spent 11 weeks following the crash in the hospital, undergoing 27 surgeries, which included skin grafts and transfusions. The aftermath of the plane crash led to DeLong reconnecting with Barker and ultimately Hoppus, eventually culminating in that long-awaited reunion in early 2009. The success of the band's comeback tour did not extend to Neighborhoods, their highly anticipated sixth studio album. The album was doomed from the get-go, as each member resided in a different location, with Hoppus living all the way in London. The distance forced each member to record most of their parts individually. To add insult to injury, the band chose to self-produce, due to the untimely death of their longtime producer, Jerry Finn. Additionally, tensions arose quickly between Hoppus and DeLong, eventually leading to communication between the two only occurring through each's manager. For Barker, he lamented getting back into the studio so quickly after his plane crash, referring to that process as, quote, a bloody mess. Despite the challenges, Blink-182 completed the record and subsequently released Neighborhoods on September 27, 2011, which upon release, Hoppus referred to as, quote, the best Blink-182 record. Initially, the album bested its untitled predecessor, debuting on the Billboard Hot... Uh, 200 at number 2. Before discussing the album at a micro level, I will share the overall vibes I encountered upon many listens. I'm sure many fans pondered before the release of the record whether Blink-182 would cling to the maturity developed prior to their hiatus or would they capitalize on humanity's undying gravitation to nostalgia and release an album filled with simple pop-punk jams about being silly. Blink unequivocally opted for the former. Lyrically, the album continued the morose sentiment found on Untitled. I was hard-pressed to find an optimistic song, as depression, anxiety, panic attacks, toxic people, addiction, and helplessness stick out as some of the album's themes. At 36 minutes, the non-deluxe version features 10 songs, and frankly, it's cohesive as hell. Stylistically, few outliers exist, and the dynamics keep the album interesting throughout. While the pop-punk ethos is palpable, Neighborhoods largely eludes the aggression of Untitled, with a greater emphasis on post-punk, incorporation of synths, and hip-hop drum beats. Regarding the record's post-punk credentials, the influence of the iconic English 80s band The Cure remains constant. I wonder if Robert Smith's feature on Untitled led to this influence. I probably should mention that Robert Smith is the singer of The Cure. Travis Barker kicks off the album with a hip-hop drum beat with the synth quickly following in the opening track, Ghosts on the Dance Floor. The song contains hella post-punk and new wave vibes. With the band back in full swing, Travis cements the perception of him as the group's backbone, 
with the beast of a drum solo before the song's final chorus. The gothic optic that the song's textures imagines perfectly sets the backdrop for the somber yet lovely lyrics. Tom DeLonge narrates a story of a man who has lost his significant other, but feels her presence when hearing a song that he and his partner had listened to together. In the first two choruses, DeLong sings, quote, I saw your ghost tonight, the moment felt so real. But following Barker's drum solo, DeLong gives listeners the feels, with the lyrical change to, quote, I saw your ghost tonight, it fucking hurt like hell. Many people viewed Ghosts on the Dance Floor as a tribute to DJ AM, the other survivor from the previously mentioned 2009 plane crash, who tragically died of an overdose less than a year after the crash. The album shifts directions on the second track, Natives. The prog punk tune features strong dynamics, and with its aggressive verses and catchy pop punk chorus, it sounds like it could have been an outtake from Untitled. The tune really is vintage blank with DeLong singing the verses, Hoppus singing the choruses, and Barker once again stealing the show. Barker plays various drum patterns using elements from disco, hip-hop, and punk. The lyrical content continues the, tomber, the somber tone of Neighborhood's first song, as the song displays the inner monologue of someone experiencing mental strife. Perhaps someone who faces intense pressures and feels they're unable to meet expectations. The vividness of the words shove the narrator's self-loathing in the listener's face with lines like, quote, I'm like a cat in a cage, locked up and battered and bruised. I am the prodigal son, a shameful prodigy too. As well as, quote, I'm just a bastard child. Don't let it go to your head. I'm just a waste of your time. Maybe I'm better off dead. Natives is high key, my favorite tune on the record. Blink-182 released their third song off the album, Up All Night, as a single on July 14, 2011. When it came out, it was their first single since November of 2005 when they released Not Now to promote their Greatest Hits album. The decision of choosing this track as the lead single baffled people, as the song sounds more like an Angels and Airwaves song rather than any notable hit from Blink's previous catalog. That's not a dig at the song as I do enjoy the kick-ass Queens of the Stone Age-like guitar riff from DeLong. The two uh, genre bends, and each member contributes to the incorporation of multiple genres. Another song with strong dynamics, Blink utilizes elements of hip-hop, pop-punk, and indie rock in the hit single. The song concludes with two brief consecutive jams, one played halftime and the latter double-time. The lyrics continue with the album's introspectively dark ethos. Up All Night discusses the inner turmoil that people deal with every day. With allusions to panic attacks and insomnia, the album focuses on the negative in inevitabilities of the human experience. Concentrating on other negative components of personhood, DeLong sings, quote, Everyone lies and cheats their wants and needs and still believes their heart, showing compassion for the microtransgressions present in humanity. After Midnight, perhaps objectively the quote-unquote strongest song on the album follows. Travis commences the album's fourth track and second single with a beat containing impressive hi-hat triplets reminiscent of a trap beat. The tune then quickly transitions into a tender post-bunk ballad once again embodying The Cure. We find significant ethereal vibes in this song that musically feels calm and peaceful, but not without a super catchy chorus. Not to sound like a broken record, but this song is not the happiest. Although, if you hold a magnifying glass up to the tone, 
you are poised to, you're poised to find a glimmer of hope. DeLong and Hoppus sing the lukewarm love song about a couple far past the honeymoon phase of their relationship. A relationship that still only weakly endures due to personal struggles of the individuals involved. The lyrics make references to alcoholism being the culprit of their destructive behavior with the line in the chorus, quote, We'll stagger home after midnight, sleep arm in arm in the stairwell. Despite the precarious status of the relationship, the narrator's unrelenting affection for his partner prevents him from giving up. The song references I Miss You from Untitled in the opening of the second verse, with the line, quote, I can't keep your voice out of my head. DeLong said that he was thinking of that tune when Barker showed him the beat, resulting in him paying homage to the generational hit. The first half of the record concludes with the fifth tune, Hearts All Gone, which contrasts the relatively mellow previous track with a ferocious tempo. Its punk rock instrumentals echo the intensity of the instrumentals found on blank tracks such as Damn It, Easy Target, and Every Time I Look For You. As per usual, Barker steals the show with, in my humble opinion, his most, his most technically impressive performance on the record. Wait, this is a show about hot takes, so this is Barker's most impressive drum performance of his career. Although the drums are the fanciest there, for me, DeLong's ominous guitar defines Hearts All Gone. And surprise, surprise, the album's fifth track continues the dark lyrical tone of the album. The nefarious diction deals with the tragic tale of the narrator falling in love with a sadistic narcissist. Although the relationship started beneficially for the narrator, the malevolence of the antagonist soured the romance. The second half of Neighborhoods picks up where the first left off, as an upbeat sad boy piece of music titled Wishing Well. The song starts off with a post-punk riff before picking up steam during the verse where it gives off the pop-punk vibes that characterized the band's glory days. The pre-chorus even features DeLong singing random syllables just as he did in All the Small Things. Barker also embodies earlier Blink-182 with his pre-chorus drum roll with heavy flange on drums just as he used in the intro of Feeling This. The melody of the chorus is perhaps one of the catchiest on the album, and the synth-filled bridge once again screams the cure. Although various elements take listeners back to their silly, carefree times, the lyrics do not. In Wishing Well, depression and helplessness surround the narrator's attempts at self-improvement. However, these attempts only worsen his condition, as DeLong sums up in the chorus with, quote, I reached for a shooting star, it burned a hole through my hand. The song also references when DeLong claimed that Angels and Airwaves would be the biggest band in the world following the band's 2005 hiatus, a comment that DeLong said was misinterpreted and perhaps spurred by his Vicodin addiction he was dealing with at the time. Hoppus characterized the song as, quote, very catchy, but the lyrics are really, really dark and a little depressing, but I like that about this record, and I think that this song kind of embodies that notion. I completely agree with Hoppus here. Great song, but probably not a good song to blast at a party. Unless it's a follow-up to, it's my party, I'll cry if I want to. The seventh song on Neighborhoods, Kaleidoscope, reminds me of the Beatles song, She Said, She Said. I know it's far-fetched, but hear me out. Barker's beat and frequent use of the toms along with the melody in the verse for some reason always brings my mind to that psychedelic rock classic. But I digress. 
Another song with strong dynamics and another song where Barker steals the show. Barker especially shows off with his polyrhythms in the first and second chorus. Speaking of the choruses, each possesses a, def- a different level of intensity, culminating with an explosive third chorus. The bridge on this one is particularly gnarly. Aggressive yet melodic, sandwiched between two separate hip-hops, hip-hop beats from Barker. The lyrics here depict the artistic compromise that musicians face when dealing with the business side of their work. When Hoppus sings, the lyrics focus on the negative side of the trade-off of being a working musician, with lines such as, quote, Let the hours stick past the deadline, get another stamp in your passport, wash your breakfast down with some red wine. When DeLong sings the chorus, I get the impression that he's communicating the anxieties associated with the band's reunion. Hoppus completely debunks my well-thought-out analysis, saying, quote, It is kind of being a slacker in 2011, kind of the 20s and 30s malaise that is America right now. That's kind of what it's about. I hope that makes sense. Well, guess it makes sense. Whatever. The album starts winding down with its eighth track, This Is Home. With it, ladies and gentlemen, we finally get a somewhat happy song. Musically, it blends the old sound of Blink-182 with the new, combining a pop-punk beat, riff, and vocals with the synth. The band once again employs the influence of The Cure with an acoustic guitar played throughout, reminiscent of the iconic 80s band's 1985 hit, In Between Days. Lyrically, as I said, we finally have a song without doom and gloom. Probably the only song possessing the lyrical ethos of their early days, DeLong sings about being a reckless concert going in a concert that ended in a riot. The word choice here basks in the immaturity found back in their pre-untitled era, with lines such as, quote, We fucking fight like vagabonds, we dance like fucking animals. And, quote, Get close, the crowd will come apart, that girl will try to make you hard. Thus, I think the title of This Is Home adequately labels Neighborhood's eighth song. The record's penultimate song has the weirdest name on the album. MH-418-2011 was the name of the song's file on Hoppus' computer and the band left the name unchanged because they thought it sounded like a virus. The song opens with a bang, containing the aggression similar to the song Obvious off of Untitled. Despite its aggressive introduction, the poppy chorus is damn well catchy. With its unrelenting intensity, it aligns most with the band's sound historically. I'm not even going to sum up the tone of the lyrics because y'all know where I'm going. The lyrics detail a community living in, a, in war-torn desolation. In the chorus, Hoppus seems to help the community navigate their harsh realities with the opening line, quote, Hold on, the worst is yet to come. The verses are pretty bleak and culminate with the second verse ending, quote, Let it burn, let it fall, let the end of the world come, who's left to care? Finally, Blink-182 closes their post-hiatus LP with a stylistic outlier. Love is Dangerous sounds like a song processed in a lab to emulate in equal parts The Cure and The Killers. The song concludes with the heaviest usage of the instrument contributing most to their new sound the synth. Continuing the theme of strong dynamics, the interesting bridge contains that synth, as well as polyrhythms from Barker and DeLong's driving octaves. 
The, gar- the gargantuan final chorus crashes and burns on its way to the decrescendoed ending of the song and album. The lyrics end the album as they dominated throughout on a somber note. Detailing the severe heartbreak stemming from a non-mutual breakup, the words read like a b-side from Untitled. The lyrics are hopeless, romantically nihilistic, and further continue the hellish spiral that the narrator on Neighborhoods endures. Well, folks, there you have an in-depth description of Blink-182's first album back after their hiatus. This album ushered in a new era for the band, as I like to call it the post-hiatus era. As you could probably tell, I think Neighborhoods is a terrific record, albeit flawed. Critics generally agreed and seemed to enjoy the album, with an overall score of 69 for Metacritic, just under the score of 71 that their predecessor received. All Music awarded the album 4 stars out of 5. Stephen Earlwine, who wrote the review, concluded his article asserting that, quote, the hiatus did them some good. Also, both Entertainment Weekly and the AV Club rated Neighborhoods as a B-. The highest praise the album received came from IGN, a video game and entertainment media website who lauded the record with a 9 out of 10 rating. Fans, on the other hand, weren't particularly impressed. Although the album debuted at number 2 on the Billboard Hot 200, higher than the high watermark of their predecessor, it significantly undersold compared with their four previous albums. Now, of course, someone could point out that in 2011 versus 1997 to 2003, the period where Blink released a string of four platinum albums, the presence of illegal downloading and the emergence of streaming platforms such as Spotify diminished the significance of album sales. But even if we take a look at Neighborhood's average album track stream on Spotify, which is definitely a legitimate statistic and not something I made up three seconds ago, it had an average album track stream of just under 22.5 million, with its most played song, After Midnight, garnering about 52 million streams. In case you're curious, the average album track stream adds up the total Spotify streams of songs on an album and divides it by the number of songs. Untitled's AATS, that's what I'm calling my cool stat now, is currently over 85 million, with I Miss You as its most played song with about 630 million streams. Untitled's predecessor, Take Off Your Pants and Jacket, currently has an AATS of about 79 million, with its most played song, First Date, garnering roughly 343 million streams. Since I'm already on the tangent of my cool statistic, let's look at their breakthrough album, Enem of the State. With an AATS of nearly 168 million, that 1999 icon currently has seven times the AATS of Neighborhoods. Listeners have streamed the band's biggest hit, All the Small Things, most, with a plays amount of roughly $850 million. So now that I've brought math into the podcast, I have to ask the million-dollar question. This summer, when millions of people attend Blink-182 concerts, why will most people choose to use the restroom if and when the band plays anything from neighborhoods? In other words, why is the band's sixth studio album, their comeback album, a forgotten one? Well, two reasons come to mind for me. The first deals with the presence of pop punk, the genre most associated with the band. While pop punk exploded in the early 90s with bands such as Green Day and The Offspring, the genre peaked in the late 90s and early 2000s with Blink-182 serving as the poster child for the cultural zeitgeist. Other bands such as Jimmy Eat World, Some 41, and Good Charlotte rose to prominence around that time as well. But in the mid-aughts, with bands such as Fall Out Boy, My Chemical Romance, and Panic at the Disco, 
pop punk took on darker tones and the label of emo seemed to overtake pop punk in the mainstream musical lexicon. By the time the early 2000s rolled around, neither emo nor pop punk approximated the levels of commercial success they were accustomed to. Even bands that retained popularity traditionally associated with the pop punk label, such as Fall Out Boy and Paramore, deviated from the sound that endeared fans of the genre only a half decade prior. Thus, the timing of the release of Neighborhoods in the midst of the declining popularity of the genre perhaps diminished the enthusiasm surrounding the record. For the other reason, we have to revisit March 14, 2000 once again. When Adam's song came out, for better or for worse, Blink-182 was a new band. After that single came out, they effectively became a serious band more focused on subject matters of societal importance, rather than the toilet humor that dominated the vast majority of their first three studio albums. They acquiesced to their manager's demands on Take Off Your Pants and Jacket. Without the two silly singles, First Date and The Rock Show, which were written last minute, the only remaining single would have been Stay Together for the Kids, the intense song about growing up in a broken home. Although the band relished in their new identity of mature, listeners weren't as enthralled with the serious tunes. You might be thinking, but dub, Blink-182 released their untitled album, which you even said is far more mature than anything they had ever done, and they still had two huge hits from that album. Well, that's true, but let's look at those two big hit singles, Feeling This and I Miss You. While the instrumental and production side of Feeling This presented unprecedented dynamics, the sexually explicit lyrics saw the band retain the silliness that endeared millions to the band in 1997 when Damn It came out. For example... The second stanza of Feeling This's first verse reads, quote, Show me the way to bed. Show me the way you move. Fuck it, such a blur. I love all the things you do. Not exactly a Pablo Neruda poem here. The other hit single from the record, I Miss You, certainly doesn't contain the overt silliness of Feeling This. But to express its own immaturity, I have to once again bring up my dad. On the car ride from New York to Florida when we moved in the summer of 2005, I popped untitled into my mom's minivan city player. When it came time for the first chorus and Tom DeLonge repeatedly sings in his pop-punk accent, quote, the voice inside my head, not really spacing out the word my and head, my dad, doing his best dad jokes, sarcastically asked me, Dove, what's a yed? DeLonge's over-the-top vocals, as soon as they kick in, have become memefied over the years due to the way in which he he sings inherently silly lyrics, such as, quote, and as I stare I counted, the webs from all the spiders, catching things and eating their insides. So while they certainly don't stoop to the level of immaturity of Dysentery Gary, The Party Song, or Happy Holidays You Bastard, they certainly don't reach the level of seriousness of, say, Adam's song, Stay Together for the Kids, or, well, songs about being reminded of deceased loved ones, or insomnia, or an emotional helplessness themes found throughout Neighborhoods. In the 36 minutes of Neighborhoods, with all of the instrumental prowess, lyrical thoughtfulness, and catchy melodies, the lighthearted silliness that endeared people to the band, starting from many in 1997 when Mark Hoppus asked, quote, Did you hear? You fucked her? Cannot be found. In 2016, after the departure of Tom DeLonge, the band released a follow-up album, California, with former Alkaline Trio frontman Matt Skiba, replacing DeLong. The album in many ways returned to their silliness of old with an interlude of Hoppus proclaiming, quote, I want to see some naked dudes, that's why I built this pool. Additionally, one of their biggest hits from the album, 
the silly, light-hearted pop-punk ditty she's out of her mind, sounds like a B-side from Enema of the State or Take Off Your Pants and Jacket with its musical simplicity and jovial lyrics such as, quote, I'm in deep with this girl, but she's out of her mind. Whoa, whoa, whoa. She said, babe, I'm sorry, but I'm crazy tonight. Whoa. Perhaps in part due to the departure from the intensity and maturity of neighborhoods, California eclipsed its predecessor, its predecessor with an AATS of 45.5 million, bolstered in part through its top song, Bored to Death, which has 148 million plays on Spotify. I'll end this segment bringing it back to the Beatles. When they changed directions in 1965 with their release of Rubber Soul, their songwriting improved, their lyrics diversified, and their instrumentation became more complex. But with their maturity, audiences grew with them, and consequently, their commercial success and cultural influence increased. For my generation's Beatles, Blink-182, they did not garner the same audience response when they made similar changes, and thus, Neighborhoods, the seemingly poster child of those changes has become a forgotten album. I met my next guest three and a half years ago. And of course, our first friendly debate was about Blink-182. In addition to being a close friend, he's also my bandmate. So although he's an economist by day, he rocks both the keyboards and the mic when he's out of the office. He also hosts some of the best parties I've ever been to. So if you haven't attended one, just show up to the next. He won't care. Please welcome Russell Ramtahal. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. And uh, we were just talking about, I know that... um, you know, you've done your Kentucky Derby parties two years running. Can you, you tell people a little bit about that? Yeah, big party thrower. Uh, love having a good time. So Kentucky Derby party, we had, uh, you know, food, drinks. We had a full cocktail bar. Uh, we also, you know, yeah, I have to have mint juleps on the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> uh, but we also, I kind of went overboard. I had some prizes and contests. Uh, there was a bet, best hat contest. You could win a bunch of prizes. And yeah, it was a pretty fun time. Oh yeah, it was awesome, and uh, and I I won a stress ball, and of course you know I I I already I've already broken it. I, I figured you probably would have. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I got a little too stressed yeah. out, and the ball just burst. When you know somebody with antidepressants, like you probably <laughs> shouldn't also give them a stress ball. Yeah, they're gonna, they're gonna break it. That's that's fair point. Fair point. Um, but anyways, let's get right into it. So, what kind of music do you listen to the most currently? Uh by far, it's got to be pop punk. That's that's probably the most common thing I've listened yeah. to my whole life. Well, that's why we have you here. Yeah, I mean, I figured <laughs> there's going to be one episode I'm on. Uh, it's going to be about this. <laughs> um, so I assume that your parents didn't spoon feed you pop punk as a child. So what kind of music were you spoon fed? Uh, I wasn't spoon fed anything in particular, but one thing that was always there was like blues so my parents are kind of old too like my parents are kind of old hopefully they don't hear this uh but they my dad was born in 1955 and so what is he late 60s now so i grew up listening to a lot of like he loved crooner music so i listened to a lot of like frank sinatra really um but he also loved some of the old funk stuff so like i listened to a lot of stevie wonder growing up um i listened to a lot of ray charles growing up 
Um, but my mom was more into like Bob Dylan uh, and like blues and stuff. So she would listen to, um, you know, uh, who was, I mean, who was some big bands that she used to listen to too? I know that I just said those two genres, but really the first thing that came to my mind was the Eagles was uh, my parents. I mean, my mom loved the yeah. Eagles. So I listened to a lot of them, listened to a lot of Van Morrison, Bob Dylan. There was a guy that she really liked called Johnny Lang, really good blues rock guitarists. Um, so yeah, that was kind of like the, the genre. I didn't grow up listening to like rock music though. Like I didn't listen to like ACDC or Metallica yeah. or I didn't have those kind of parents that Your were... Your parents weren't in, into the hard stuff. No. The best thing was yeah. the Eagles. That was the yeah. most rock and roll I had. I'm trying to think, the most rock and roll I think I had was the Who. Oh really? Yeah. Cause my, my dad was, who was also born in 55. Um, and, uh, I, um, I talked about it in the intro of, uh, of this episode. Um, but you know he I, we were I was always spoon fed the Beatles. I mean that's you know by far his favorite band of all time. But he also likes to spoon fed me uh, the Eagles, yeah. Steve Miller Band. Who are yeah. the others? Like a, a lot of those. Oh Bob Dylan as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he loves he loves all that stuff. Yeah, I think I would wake up in the morning to my mom cleaning on Sunday mornings, and it would be mostly Van Morrison playing though. You know you'd hear. Brown Eyed Girl or Moon yeah. Dance, and then yeah. you, you know you have to go mop or something. What's what's the uh, Tupelo Honey? Yeah, yeah. That's... I remember they mentioned that on an episode of Friends. They were having a conversation, the most romantic song of all time, and I think uh, David Schwimmer's character Ross said uh, Tupelo Honey, and I still haven't listened to it, so I don't know. It's one of those songs that it's like I don't really know much about. It. I mean, like I said, I like grew up listening to him, yeah. but I don't know like Van Morrison's like discography. Yeah, same. I didn't even know. I found out I didn't even know he was Irish. I had no idea. Van Morrison is that an Irish name? It doesn't. I mean, well, I don't know. You think Van? I mean, Van Halen. Like that's that's from that's Dutch. So I have I have no idea. Who knows? Yeah, white people. <laughs> I can say that. I know this is a podcast and we're not videotaping it, but I can say it. We should. We got we got to get a simulcast. Going. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I might have to get better looking though if we do that. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Anyway, or just get a good camera, you know, <laughs> or a bad camera. Yeah. What were you looking at it? But uh, when did you, you know? So obviously, I mean, more than any other, more than any friend that I have, you are the pop punk guy. When did you start to discover music on your own, and was it pop punk that you discovered? It's interesting. I think musical taste is a very interesting like journey for anybody because I think it starts off as a kid. You know, you're you're doing what your parents like, and then you go into school, and then you do what the other kids are liking. You know, and you're trying to stay, you know, relevant. You're not trying to be cool, particularly, but you know, you want to stay like you know in your lane. And so I think that's what led me to be into like so much pop music in the beginning. But it wasn't until like I got into probably early high school, honestly. Uh, actually, not even that. I would say like middle school, probably like mid to late middle school. I started to really love rock music. I started to get so, and by rock, I mean pop rock. Like mm-hmm. I said, never been a huge Metallica guy. Mm-hmm. Never been into a lot of that stuff. I respect it, and I actually do listen to it occasionally, but it's just never been my primary. But I wanted to be in a band. I wanted to do all these things, uh, and I was starting to learn music because I was taking all these music classes in middle school. And so that's when I started to, like, solidify this persona as oh i'm gonna be a musician this is me i'm gonna have a rock star lifestyle uh, look at me now <laughs> uh, so uh yeah i would say around mid to late middle school is when i started to really find these bands 
and kind of tie an identity <laughs> to them in some way. So that kind of answered the next question I was going to ask was what what kind of music you got into when you started to discover music. Um, and so it sounds like it was pop rock before the pop punk or. Yeah, I mean, I would just say the radio. Yeah. The radio was like a big thing I listened to, but I because I grew up in a I grew up in a interesting area where it was like predominantly like white kids wanting to be gangster uh <laughs> which is always a fun thing and so they would always listen to like gangster rap music mm-hmm. and you know Eminem was big back then yeah. so you'd had that 50 cent was blowing up so it was like all these different things were hitting and so you know I listened to a lot of that I listened to a lot of Eminem a lot of 50 cent and then I started going down the rabbit hole for like random ciphers I would find online I would listen to this guy like Papoose who's like a big New York rapper um and so I got really really into rap for a long time um and that was the first thing, but it was mostly pop music, like just trying to listen to the radio. I wasn't the kind of kid who would, you know, ask for CDs or go to stores or things like that. I would definitely go to like FYE and like sit there yeah, and listen yeah. to stuff. I think that was the first time I ever listened to POD. Um, F- F- was FYE, did that, that place was awesome. Yeah, it was great. That I, was like, it had everything you need and you could remember you could listen to the, you could listen to the albums. That's what I was, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, how would COVID ever how would fye ever have survived COVID? <laughs> it's so good that they failed before COVID happened so they didn't have to deal with that massive problem i remember they also they sold concert tickets too they did yeah i remember i was at fye this had to be like around like 2006 2007 and this dude um like bought stone sour tickets like right in front of me like i was like getting a cd or a poster or whatever wow i didn't know that i would just go in there because my mom would be at jc penny and i had to kill time so <laughs> Did you do like was it was it Hot Topic then to FYE? I went to Hot Topic. I went to Spencer's when I shouldn't have. <laughs> uh, I would pretty much just there was this place called Bourbon Street Chicken across from the Panda Express. <laughs> I would get so much bourbon chicken. Uh, did, did you actually buy it or did you just have as many as many free samples as you could? Two things can be true. <laughs> two things can be true. <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's 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 get into. Uh, yeah, uh, Blink-182. When did you first hear of them? I probably... So, my cousin is older than me. She's... I had a cousin who would babysit me a lot. And she was probably... What is she in now? She's got to be, like, almost a decade older than me. But probably more like six to eight years. So, she would babysit us a lot. And so, I would say in early element, mid-elementary school, let's say, like, third, fourth grade, she had been playing stuff in the car. And I was like, what is this? What is this? What is this? And I found out it was Blink-182. And I was like, this is great. Along with things like Sum 41 and things like that. And then I remember them being on like, now this is music four or something. Oh, they were probably on so many. Yeah. That's what I call music. And th- like that's, th- I think that's when I really started to be like, this is something that I'm going to like. It's weird because it was so early. It was like elementary school. I started to like them. But then I went to schools and I started listening to rap way more. And I put away my rock. Mm-hmm. And then it was like late middle school. I was like, I'm a rocker again. <laughs> I was like, it was like this weird transformation. I would wear, like I'm telling you, I used to wear those super long polos with the Dickies shorts. I looked like a like a literal cholo walking around. <laughs> so it was, it was fun. It was a good time. That's awesome. That's awesome. And uh, what are some of your favorite, like, I know you've told me that you're not like the kind of person who's going to sit down and listen to an album uh, often. But do you have any favorite like one or two albums, or even if you just have any favorite songs? Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be corny. I, I want to preface a lot of this by saying like 
I'm not a Blink-182 mega fan. Like, I love Blink-182, and they're probably one of my favorite bands. But what I critic like, I guess what I categorize as a mega fan is probably different than what most people would, where it's like, I'm not going to know the whole album. I'm not going to sit back to back. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do a lot of that stuff. Um, if I like it, I like it. So I don't want to put up false pretenses here of like mm-hmm. wow this guy knows so much about Blink-182 and then we have mega fans listening maybe one yeah. day and then they're just like this guy doesn't know shit <laughs> um and so it's like well, no obviously but i will say answering your question now with that preface um take off your pants and jacket was my by far my favorite album by by a long shot i think it had it was the most nostalgic for me it was the first full album i had ever had in my life um and it was i remember just listening to it on repeat on the school bus um i had very like vivid memories of that so and on that album i think first date is something that is something i I will never not put on a playlist in my life well i I talk about um i don't know if you know this but i um so i don't and i I learned this when i was making this this um this episode but first date and rock show were not supposed to be on take off your pants and jacket really yeah their um their manager like they they essentially had finished the album they showed it to their manager and he's like yeah it's good but there's like i don't hear that like all the small things type song and so like and mark and and tom were like both pretty pissed off but they're like you know well we'll put something together and mark went and wrote the rock show and tom went and wrote first date um but for no first day for me, like the first time I heard Travis's drum intro, I was like, "Damn, this is a good song." I think I was like eleven when I heard it, and it was like, "Oh man, this is awesome." Um, I think um, was it every time I look for you yeah. was like another one of my real big. That's favorites. great. Yeah, I talk about yeah. that a lot in this episode. Um, another thing I noticed is that for me, the second half of that album is fire. Yeah, it's so good, uh, and it's it's really interesting because you know we can sit here and talk forever about you know the stylistic choices and you know the music theory behind it. But at the end of the day, they obviously have a very core sound that's very identifiable. And I think what people think of who um, who is Blink-182 today, I think of their core sound being really solidified in the second half of that album. I feel like that's yeah. really who they are. Well, that's a great point. And I really feel like you know, moving forward, especially on Untitled, which I've told you is by and far my favorite Blink-182. It's actually just one of my favorite albums of all time is they're untitled and i think a lot of that um like I, I think that there's like a lineage between um like the second half of take off your pants and jacket and untitled and then you know going beyond neighborhoods as well yeah 100 um, percent um but uh anyways and i know you've covered a bunch of blink 182 songs over the years with various bands i know because i'm in one of them <laughs> yeah do you have a favorite to cover i miss you is so fun because it's not the typical vibe right mm-hmm. um and it's it's a really fun one to sing because of the classic you know intro for tom you know the where are you yeah. kind of thing you know just nasally it's just so fun to yeah. like there's meme just the memification of it um but i think that one but also honestly first date is probably my favorite one to cover it's yeah. just i think it's, it's just one of my favorite songs we should cover that yeah we should yeah um but, uh, so why do you think that uh, Blink has had such a big influence on alternative rock, pop punk, and, and really popular culture as a whole? I think that they were, it's really, the, the way I want to word this is that they weren't really punk in the punk way, right? And it's not like, I'm not saying like, oh, they're sellouts, or they're shills, or they're fake. They're extremely real. Um, 
but it was almost like if you could bottle punk and like sell it at like uh like a theme park or something it was yeah. just like it was just a very like uh, i don't want to com- i don't want to say commercialized because that also makes it sound like fake yeah. but it was approachable it was accessible punk yeah. to the public and it was a way of like showing like hey let's take all these super poppy elements of music and some of the you know colors and imagery and let's put that into some really meaningful lyrics and some less meaningful <laughs> lyrics um over these like super heavy riffs and let's uh not heavy but you know what i mean yeah uh like intense driving right. riffs and they can get kind of gnarly yeah it can i've been to a few shows so they yeah. can, get, can get pretty wild but it's uh you know you're not going to like this punk underground show to like smash bottles over people's heads and say you know fuck the government uh it's more of like oh, my girlfriend kind of sucks <laughs> <laughs> and it's like stuff that i think in the 90s yeah. and early 2000s you know that was just the entire vibe like i think of like mtv like you remember those shows like uh, Next or it was um, the Real World? Yeah, the Real World or like uh, what was it? The uh, Room Raiders, uh, things like that. It's like that is one whole entire like I don't know. It's like a fog to me because it's like that was a crazy time and it all. I always think about Blink One Eighty Two for early two thousands, yeah, like and late nineties because that was the aesthetic. I think what maybe what's my age again? There was a Blink One Eighty Two song that was an American Pie. And, and I don't know which song, and I've actually never seen American Pie, but I know the legacy that it has, uh, for better or for worse. And I, I feel like Blink-182 is like the perfect band to have a song featured in that movie, because I feel like that's kind of what they were about at that point. I I don't remember what song it was either. Part of me wants to say it was First Date, but I don't think it is. Um, but they were actually in that movie, too. Like, uh, the three of them were, yeah, Travis, Tom, yeah. and uh, Mark, they were in that movie. And that's and if there's one band, whenever that like the year that movie came out, if there's one band that you would want in that kind of movie, it's Blink One Eighty Two. Oh yeah, I mean I would argue that we're not talking about them, but I would argue Sum Forty One is is, is uh, adjacent to yeah, them. Yeah, but they're Canadian, but so. they're fun. Although Eugene Levy is Canadian, so <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're all a little Canadian <laughs> if you don't think about it. Um. So um, and. and it, and I was thinking about this uh, the other day because I think the reason that they've had such a like a big influence um, on alternative rock and you know pop punk is that like for me I I'm, I've never really considered myself like a pop punk fan like I I love playing it on drums it's a lot of fun to play on drums but like I never really like seeked out pop punk but Blink One Eighty Two since I was a kid they've always been you know my favorite band but I think like you as a pop punk fan like they're you know, you probably consider them like titans of, of that genre. Yeah. You know, and so I just think that like talking about that accessibility, they're not niche like some other pop punk fans. Like I feel like maybe Newfound Glory or like Cartel are a little bit more niche. Whereas like Blink-182, I think you made a good point. It's like they're just more accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, th- you mentioned Cartel as one of the bands. And I was like, I didn't really know any Cartel music until probably like mid to late high school. Uh, so it's like it took me a while to kind of get into the real genre it's weird because I know that it's it's so hard to say. It's like, yes, Blink-182 is pop punk. But when people say, oh, do you listen to pop punk music? Blink-182 actually doesn't pop into my head because they seem to be like their own kind of like thing, um, which led to a lot of openings for pop punk and made it like much more quote unquote mainstream. Um, but it's definitely not. I, I mean, yes, I know it, like categorically they are pop punk, but they never crossed my mind for that for some reason. Yeah. I don't know why. 
Yeah, well, I mean, especially, I mean, we're going to obviously get into to neighborhoods, but even, like, on Untitled, um, like, that, to me, there's, like, very little, there's, like, maybe two songs that I would categorize as pop punk. Yeah. Um, so, I would say, like, probably Edema of the State and, like, probably the Take Off Your Pants of Jack, those are, like, standard pop punk, but, like, some of their most popular songs, like you talked about I Miss You, that's not even close to a pop punk song. No, I mean, it's interesting, it's more in the sense of, like, the emo music, right? And right. so it's, like... And emo was really, as a quote-unquote genre, uh, was really making its way in the mid-2000s, right? I mean, early 2000s for sure, but I mean, that's really, you know, 2005 onward. That's when you had bands that were really doing that whole emo thing. And I think Blink-182 kind of capitalized on that as well. Uh, That's actually, I I wanted to ask you about that because I did a little bit of research on it um, and talked about it very briefly. But like, you know, pop punk versus emo because i know there's like a whole lot of overlap but like what's what separates emo from pop punk that's a really good question um i don't know if they're entirely separate genres some people would probably argue that emo is like a subgenre of mm-hmm. pop punk um and i think that's i don't know if i'd agree with it and what i'm what i mean by that is i don't i genuinely don't know if i would agree <laughs> with it um but i could definitely see how that's a valid thing but to me, pop punk is probably more. The elements of pop punk are probably more in the actual music of it, like the instrumentation and the style choices. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like emo is more of the lyrical content yeah. and like aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think the idea of like emo being a subgenre of pop punk makes sense. Um, because it's like, well, they're not really categorized by the same criterion mm-hmm. um so you could technically do both um but yeah i don't really know i mean like because you have emo trap music right uh yeah. that's happening today um is that a thing yeah i guess yeah i'm, I'm not gonna check that out <laughs> yeah i, I mean, mean that doesn't i mean yeah listen to every like rapper today man like i mean pretty much everybody has like that emo pop punk vibe to yeah them. that's um, true and you can thank like you know machine gun kelly through actually probably Travis Barker uh, with that, you know, um, kind of having that resurgence. Well, well, that has to do, I think, a lot with the stylistic change that Blink-182 went through in the early 2000s was Tom, or not Tom, Travis was just like listening and performing a lot of hip hop. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. He was, I mean, and didn't they do, they did a tour with like Lil Wayne at one point and stuff. And so like, they've always had like their connections into like the rap world in some way, shape or form. Well, one thing I and I, I talk about this is that like Travis Barker, I I don't really think was ever a punk drummer. Um, well, I guess because he got his start. Um, well, I don't know if he got his start, but like his first major project was the the Aquabats. Have you heard of them before? Yeah, yeah. I mean, wasn't it was like they were on tour at one point with Blink and like he had to fill in. <laughs> yeah, for them? yeah, because he filled because he filled in for Scott Rayner. Yeah. That, that's that's the original. The story is that he filled in and he like learned all the songs in yeah. like forty five minutes or I don't remember what it was or he learned forty five songs in some short amount of time. I don't know, but it was crazy that he did that. But I didn't yeah. know anything by the Aquabats um, at all. Well, I I hadn't heard of them and I didn't even know that Travis Barker was in until later. But I saw Real Big Fish in twenty eleven, which was an awesome show. Yeah, they're fantastic. You've seen, oh yeah, because they they were at um, they were at the Warped Warped Tour, Tour, yeah, yeah. in uh, two thousand eight, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't remember. Exactly. So remember, yeah, um, but but yeah, anyway. So and uh, the Aquabats opened for them, and I actually I caught the set list. 
Really? Uh, yeah, I caught the set list, but I didn't really like care about the band, so I just like I gave it to there was like a I can't remember who, but there was like a girl next to me who was just like really into it, and I gave it to her. Um, but yeah, that was, but there, it wasn't like their music wasn't great, but the showmanship and like the onstage antics were yeah. great. Cause they were all dressed up like superheroes and God, I love Warped Tour. I miss Warped Tour <laughs> so much. It, it's, 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 is that's... it, is it, is it done? Is Warped Tour done? Yeah. Uh, they had the last Warped Tour, like, what was it? Three, four years ago now. Um, I think it was like 2019 was the last one and it wasn't even like the full tour. It was three shows they had a west coast show a midwest one and then they had a east coast and i went to the one on the east coast which was in atlantic city on the beach and it was like a two and a half day event i think and you know i saw like nine uh i almost said 1985 bowling for soup uh i saw blink 182 there with matt skiba though um and you know tons of bands were there it was an amazing thing but warp tour to me is by far the best set of shows I've ever been to best tour mm-hmm. best music festival whatever you want to call it do you think that like it could be because when, when you were explaining the most recent um, warp tour it reminded me of Lollapalooza because like Lollapalooza yeah. used to be the tour and now it's just like you know they'll have like a couple shows do you think that like warp tour could come back in like like that like as just like this big festival that people come to well, now there's something called like Sad Summer Festival, which is happening uh, yearly, which is done by Journeys instead of Vans, right? And they have been getting a lot more traction, it's been getting bigger and bigger. But they're more in like the kind of more newer pop punk stuff. You know, you're looking at like, and by newer, you might some of these bands seem older, but like All Time Low, Mayday Parade, The Main, uh, even more people like Stand Atlantic, like some of these other bands uh, that are probably more modern in the pop punk scene. It's not really like, a lot of the classic ska people or even the hardcore bands. Like there was like post-hardcore bands like Pierce the Veil and stuff you would occasionally see at Warped Tour and things like that. So, and Falling in Reverse and Escape the Fate, which you won't probably see at something like Sad Summerfest. But for Vans, Warped Tour, from what I can tell, they're not doing anything anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, the guy had been, it was the longest running tour in U.S. American history. Uh, it had been going like longest, continuous, biggest tour. Um, and it was, I think he was just tired. <laughs> I forgot the guy's name, but he was just like, I can't keep setting this up. Yeah. This, is, this is a lot. This is a lot. So it's funny though, because when it stopped, it was like the next year Machine Gun Kelly's album came out. I'm pretty sure. And it was just like, everybody loves pop punk now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, great. That would have been fantastic if they didn't cancel all their deals. Yeah. But, but you probably would have gotten a lot of people there that are like, not, you know, true pop punk fans like they're like a lot of the artists that you'd probably see at warp tour wouldn't appeal to them like they would just be looking yeah. for a couple artists here and there and it would maybe like affect the like environment of the festival i don't know like i think the cra- it's weird pop punk shows have some of the best and worst people at them so i don't think it would affect it but i do loved War- i did love warp tour for one thing is that it was open pretty much to all ages it wasn't like you know uh, Bonnaroo or things like that or like these big EDM festivals where it's like oh we don't care about the music we're just going to get fucked up and I'd be like okay that makes sense but at Warp Tour it was to me it felt way, way more about the music because it was like yeah you'd see all ages there all the time um, and you could still drink and you know people were still smoking weed or whatever they were doing uh, I didn't I'm a straight edge I don't do drugs you hear that <laughs> FBI I'm a clean man um, so you mentioned Matt Skiba and I'm going to ask you about him in a second, but kind of our bridge to that. Um, did you listen to any of the post hiatus projects that the different band members did like, uh, angels and airwaves? I know it was the big one plus yeah. 44 as well. I didn't listen to the 44 one. I did listen to angels and airwaves a lot because 
one of my best friends, uh, Chase Anderson, who also has a podcast. Go check him out at the Lucky Duck Podcast uh, on Spotify. I had to put that plug in real quick. Uh, but he um, was the guitar player and singer in my first band. And he was the person who probably got me most into Blink-182. And he was a big Angels and Airwaves fan. And so because of that, I started to listen to Angels and Airwaves a, a good amount. I did not like them any more than I liked Blink-182 when they first came out because they sounded exactly the same. I'm not going to lie. Like, they sounded very similar to me. They had different lyrical context, and obviously it was a little bit more serious uh, of a project for Tom. But in terms of, like, musicality and, like, differences in, like, aesthetics in that sense, the melodies were very similar. The harmonies were very similar. So... I didn't really like them any more or less. I just liked them the same. And I was like, well, I'm just going to listen to Blink-182. Yeah. Um, but their newer stuff, um, and by newer, I think the last thing that came out was like 2020. But he had a song come out in 2019 called Rebel Girl. That one was really good. I really liked that one. Um, there was another one that came out in 2020. I can't remember what it was called, but it was very, very good. Um, so if you're not, if you're curious about Angels and Airwaves, go check out their more recent stuff. That's definitely something where I think Tom started to find his sound he was never a guy you've seen him play guitar he's never literally been a virtual oso in guitar but he makes it up for in like his experimentation with sounds and sound design and effects and he really gets into like the space rocky kind of ethereal sounds uh in angels and airwaves um while still it's very fun because it's like maintaining the same melodic structures of a lot of things that are happening in Blink-182 songs, but over this dreamscape of music. Um, and I've, it's just gotten better and better over the years of him finding that kind of niche for himself. Yeah, I've also noticed, I feel like his, the timbre of his voice has changed. Okay. It 1000% has. I mean, go listen to literally Dude Ranch and then go listen to like one of those recent Air- mm-hmm. Angels and Airwaves songs. It's like deeper, it's clearer i don't i really don't know what to call it but it's it's still the nasally like you know it's tom DeLong, but you you have this feeling of like he was he's cloned and replaced like ever <laughs> so i don't know it sounds less obnoxious yeah that's it's probably like after he got abducted or something <laughs> you know the probe just kind of like hit his vocal cords a little too hard <laughs> um that's a whole other topic so it gets it's good that we're talking about tom so now we can transition to you know his brief replacement what was like a five or six year replacement um, Matt Skiba. Uh, what did you think of the Matt Skiba era? I didn't listen to, was it Alkaline Trio? Very much. I listened to like, it's funny, I listened to two songs by them at an FYE one time. <laughs> um, and I don't remember like disliking them. Yeah. Um, but I cannot tell you anything about them. But I saw him live twice. Uh, once in Tallahassee and then once at that Warp Tour in um, Atlantic City. It was great. It was an awesome show. The, he's got great stage presence. He seems like a fun guy. They got the band up and running, doing a lot of the same songs. He picked up a lot of the stuff that Tom did. Not to the same, like, nostalgic feel of it. And, like, Tom being on stage is different than, you know, Matt. Uh, but regardless, I think the albums that came out under him, like, while he was around, were great, honestly. And I, I think he did a fantastic job and... I have nothing negative to say about Matt Skiba. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think a lot of times when you have, like, core members that are replaced, like I know, as, as you know, I'm a big Chili Pepper fan, and, you know, I talked, I had the episode about One Hot Minute, um, and, you know, the guitarist that replaced Frushante, you know, 
didn't hold a candle to him. Um, and whereas I think Matt Skiba, you know, obviously you can't replace Tom just because of, you know, the, the personality that he brings, um, and the uniqueness that he brings. But I think Matt Skiba really did kind of create Blink-182 as a, as a new band, but it still retained a lot of the qualities that endeared fans to them. Um, so I think I really enjoyed the Matt Skiba era and, and we've talked about the album nine, which was uh, nine, right? Yeah. Nine. Yeah. Yeah. It came out in 2019 and I, I, California, I love that album. Like when it came out, I was like super impressed. I fucking hated California. I uh, maybe hated is too strong, but I really did not like it, uh, as much as nine. I thought nine was fantastic. I thought California had like three good songs on it. Um, and I just couldn't get, I'm not, I couldn't get through it. It's just like, it just wasn't my thing. Um, but nine, I would agree with you. It was fantastic. I think we listened to it on the yeah. plane, uh, when we were going to a wedding. Well, what's um, that? What's the pin the grenade? That's yeah, the song. Pin that, the grenade. Oh, oh man. I could listen to that yeah. all day. That's a great song. 1000% my favorite song off of that album for sure. Yeah. What's the, I, w- I really wish I hated you. Yeah. That's a great one. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's even, even including Mr. Skiba, do you have a favorite member of the band? I... You know what? I I have to say Tom DeLonge for his vocals because one of the things that I really liked about pop punk is the melodies that they incorporate, right? These kind of like maybe overly simplistic. I don't know if that's offensive, but like these really, really catchy melodies. And Tom always had the best melodic singing parts. It was like always the catchy things always the things I wanted to sing and it really influenced a lot of my own writing like a lot of the riffs I write a lot of the vocal melodies I write kind of do that same like two three one two three one thing that he does um and I I I think that he's probably my favorite for that as like a person as an image as someone who does a lot of cool shit I probably uh you know um why am I blanking right now uh well I would still say Tom but Mark, Mark has done so much more projects with other people. Mm-hmm. Like he's done stuff with like Neck Deep, which is an amazing pop punk band. Uh, he's done his own projects with um, what is it, Alex? I don't know how to pronounce his name. The lead singer from All Time Low. They have their new thing called like was it Strange Creatures? That's the other project he's been doing. So in terms of just like getting his hands in a bunch of other stuff, Mark has done a lot for pop punk in the modern day. Um, whereas Tom. It's just more fun to listen to, in my opinion. You know, I was thinking a lot about this, and I, and, and you would probably think, oh, Travis would be my favorite because he's such an incredible drummer, and I play drums. But I don't know why, but Mark, Mark has got to be my favorite. And I, yeah. I, I just think there's just like some kind of like, there's this, a sense of normalcy to him. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing like, you know, and I love Tom, and I don't even mean this in an insulting way, but sometimes like his lyrics, the quality of it, or not the lyrics, well, the lyrics too, but his voice can sound a little gimmicky. With like, yeah, I love that though. <laughs> which, which yeah. again, I'm not even saying it's yeah. an insult. Um, um, but whereas Mark is just, he sounds like you could put him in any any band, and he could probably fit in. Um, and some some of this probably the the my favorite Blink 182 songs usually um, the vocals are provided, uh, the lead vocals are provided by Mark, and I would think that that means that he writes those songs, and I don't, but I don't really know that for a fact. Um, but just the songs that he's on lead vocals, I tend to I tend to prefer. Yeah, I would I would see that. From you, particularly, I think that makes sense. I um, it's always funny because Mark does kind of seem like the dad of the group. Yeah, <laughs> he definitely seems yeah. like the most put together 
Um, and it was really sad when he announced that you know he had cancer, but yeah. you know he's cancer free now, which is great. Yeah. Um, so that's fantastic. But you know, it's just seeing him throughout the years and like kind of like just being normal and just being like, but also being not normal because he's yeah. next to these insane yeah. people all the time. Uh, it's it's pretty wild. Um, but his his stuff is great, and like I said, the music that he writes, his writing is fantastic. Yeah, that's that's one thing. When when I was you know doing this episode, um. Like the the whole crux of this episode, um, and when it comes out, you'll you'll hear it. Um, is is Adam's song? Yes, like, yeah, and I love that Adam's song. that is an amazing song, and the songwriting in that song is so unbelievable on so many levels. I feel like, and I love that song, but I I think there's a song that I always think of when I think of Adam's song too, in terms of like emotional on the same emotional like hierarchy, because it's like you think of like. You know, I want to fuck a dog in the fucking ass song. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, that's probably the lowest yeah. in terms of, like, seriousness. But, like, in terms of serious songs, Adam's song is up there, but the other one is Stay Together for the Kids. Right. And those are probably my two favorite songs where I'm like, oh, this band isn't just shit and piss jokes all the time. Yeah. Uh, I think, wasn't their first tour called the Pee Pee Poo Poo Tour? <laughs> no, 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 no. Was it? It's like, that was, like, the name of their LLC or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I don't remember. Like, Either yeah. way. But it's like, it's the duality of these people yeah. is... That's what really attracts me to pop punk, by the way, is like this idea of like, hey, life sucks and we get it and, you know, I'm going to complain about it. But also pee pee poo poo pee pee. Like, <laughs> it's funny. It's it's a joke. Life is a joke sometimes. Yeah. And I, I love that duality and yeah. it really kind of grounds me in a lot of ways. So the, when they write music like that and prove to me, oh, you get it. Like, you, you're, you're understanding. Well, yeah, I think like on Enema of the, like on, on uh, Enema of the State, which is... Um, the album that features Adam's song. I think the song that precedes it is Dysentery Gary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> With, it's, yeah, the, the you know. interludes they have and yeah. all that stuff. It's like, yeah, it it's so funny. You'll go from talking about, like, suicide to immediately being like, I'm going to literally fuck this dog. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go back into, like, my girlfriend sucks. <laughs> and it's like, okay, dude, pick a lane. <laughs> but... Um, but that's something that's interesting about older pop punk too, is like, they talked a lot about different, I don't know, they talked a little bit about different things. I feel like a lot of pop punk I listen to these days is very good, very, very good. But I feel like the range of content or things that they talk about or sing about is a lot more relationship focused. It's a lot more of like, and not even current events. It's just kind of mostly like honestly relationships and then relationships with yourself, there hasn't been a lot of like talking about situations like dealing with uh, divorce or dealing with a friend's suicide or things like that. You know, you get those, but I, I feel like those things, or even like the establishment talking about like, because that's what punk really is, right? So if you're going to have pop punk, it's just pop be melodies over still saying fuck the government. Um, you're not getting a lot of that these days, but no. Blink 182 definitely had that with their kind of uh, laissez faire attitude about shit and just being. They, they remind me very much of like the Trey Parker and Matt Stones of the world of just like yeah. Trey Parker and Matt Stone with South Park. What South Park is to TV is what Blink-182 is to music, to, in my opinion. It's like we're going to make jokes. We're going to have fun. But we're going to also subtly and surprisingly tell you things that make you sad or <laughs> upset um, and comment on it. So it's like it's satirical in a way. But you could also like relate them back to like Futurama too where it's like yeah. Futurama is like mostly jokes all the time and then they have an episode about a dead dog instead of fucking it. And <laughs> – then it makes you cry. You're like, how am I crying? So it's like, that's kind of what Blink-182 is too. It's like, 
you're laughing, you're laughing, and then before you know it, you're crying. And that's a really that's a really good artist, in yeah. my opinion. If you can invoke that emotional spectrum from a listener, you've done your job as an artist. No, completely agree. Um, and that's a a great way to end that segment because I want to talk about neighborhoods, which is the uh, the subject of, of this episode. Um, and uh, before I ask you specifics about neighborhoods, I just want to get your opinion. Like, obviously, this is a forgotten albums episode but how would you define a forgotten album i think a forgotten album isn't really all that complex like i'm not gonna have some groundbreaking definition for it um but it's definitely one that doesn't just do well commercially but i think it is contextual to understand what's going on during that time it was a 2011 album right Mm -hmm. and it's like what was happening in 2011 it's like oh, I was graduating high school so that I can have some remembrance of like, oh yeah, like LMFAO was really popular. Yeah. And so it's like party rock music, right? Like that was really where it was at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like there was this kind of, not death to the pop punk, but in a, that was like the starting of it in a way, right? Because things like Paramore were falling off, people weren't listening necessarily to Fall Out Boy anymore. Yeah. You know, these things were going away and it became almost uncool to listen to it. So was it a commercial failing? Yes, in relative to like its previous out al- previous albums by Blink One Eighty Two, but I think it was just a cultural shift away from things. So, and what defines a, an album is truly probably just cultural and uh, commercial failure, mm-hmm. right? But it's not always the album's fault, is what I'm saying. Right. That. Yeah, so but would you agree with like with the definition that you were given? I know you were saying that like you know it wasn't neighborhoods wasn't as like commercially successful um, as their predecessors, but you know what you consider a forgotten album? Would you uh, label neighborhoods with that? Yeah, I would say that if you're a cursory Blink One Eighty Two fan, you're gonna know take your uh, take off your pants and jacket. You're gonna know Enemy of the State. You're gonna know Untitled. You might know Dude Ranch. Dude Ranch, yeah. You would be wild to remember neighborhoods, yeah. um, or even like the EP that came out preceding that, which was like Dogs Eating Dogs, I think. Um, yeah. And see, I know some stuff. I'm not. I'm not a complete nobody. <laughs> um, and so it's like that was such an exciting time for me because I was like, oh fuck yeah, new Blink One Eighty Two. But I was like, this isn't Blink One Eighty Two. <laughs> I was like, this isn't. What neighborhood sounds like is like what they kind of did with nine almost. It's like it's weird if you go listen. Yeah, to that, yeah. that's a really good comparison. It's really like, like that. It was too ahead of its time for yeah. themselves. It's like they were like, I want to be the mature version of myself now, and it's like too early. Yeah. <laughs> like we're still listening to LMFAO. All right, so cool it down. But no, I agree that it is forgotten. A lot of people don't remember it. I honestly, the first time that I listened to it was. Um, you know, when I was preparing for this, um, for this episode, because when I had the idea of talking about forgotten albums, there were like a few albums that I thought of right off the top of my head. And obviously one hot minute was one that we had the episode on. And like the second one that came to my mind was neighborhoods because I had forgot about it. Like I remember when it came out cause they were doing a tour and I wanted to go and I didn't get the opportunity to, but, um, I just remember like when it came out and thinking, oh, this is going to be a huge hit. And then I didn't ever heard about it again. Um, but uh, but when I listened to it, when I listened, I was expecting it to be terrible. I was like, well, people didn't really like gravitate 
towards it when it came out, it's probably because it's not a good album. And then I listened through and I'm like, this is really good. Yeah, it's really good. I listened to it uh, kind of in preparation for this, like in the last you know, few days, I kind of gave it a few listens. I love it. Honestly, like Ghost on the Dance with a title track yeah. to that is like, it's amazing. It's so good. And I, I remember when I first heard that album, I was like, that was the song that I was like really excited about to listen to the rest of the album. But then the rest of the album happened and it didn't invoke the same response that Take Off Your Pants and Jacket did because mm-hmm. it didn't have the same exact like melodic hits for me. That's where it was. And it was this concept, uh, not concept, it was like this timing of like where Mark's starting to try some new things and Angels and Airwaves influences from Tom are really affecting yeah. the, the soundscape of it. And I was like, oh, well, this is this is different. This doesn't sound that punk, that pop punky thing. And so I went off to start getting that from other places like Mayday Parade and Go Radio and All Time Low and The Main because they were feeding me the same stuff I wanted. Uh, whereas Book Two was like, I'm going to try something different. You're, you might not like it, but your kids are going to love it yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Did you, but when it came out, you listened to it or? I listened to it, yeah. I mean, but I wouldn't say that. If you were to ask me like three weeks ago, like, hey, do you remember any songs off of Neighborhoods? I would have been like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just remember the album existing, but I don't really, nothing sticks out in me. Um, so I did listen through it, but it wasn't like something that stuck with me. Yeah. Do you have like, I know you mentioned Ghost on the Dance Floor, which I think is such an awesome song. And I think that, um, you know, putting it into context with DJ Adam, we haven't talked about that, but the, I think the plane crash is like a huge influence on Neighborhoods. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, um, and I, I, I didn't really know. Like, I remember when the plane crash happened, but I don't like. I didn't really know that much detail about it. And reading about it was really horrific. Yeah, I mean, I didn't realize like sixty five percent of his body was in yeah. something or thirty. He was in so much pain all the time. I mean, I think I was reading some article where he was like, and this is gonna make it dark, where he was like offering friends a million dollars to like help him end his life, and it was just like, thank God he didn't, right? Because I mean, it's yeah. like he's, he's so much better off now he's happy he's got yeah. a great life um was he just married like courtney kardashian or something yeah uh and so it's like he's i'm, I'm just glad that he didn't do that yeah so. absolutely um but because i think goes on the dance floor it's it's interesting because a lot of people think that it's a, a tribute to dj adam who was the other survivor on the yeah. plane but then um died of an overdose about a year later anyways um what are, uh, uh, yeah, anyways, but I know you said Ghost on the Dance Floor is one of your favorites. Um, do you have any other favorite songs on the album or, like, least favorite songs on the album? I don't think I had a least favorite song. I liked Wishing Well, I think, was another one that really was like, oh, I like this one. I'll listen mm-hmm. to this one again. Um, the way I listen to albums is, like, I'll listen through it, and then I'll denote the songs that I want to listen to again. And then I just listen to those over and over again until I get sick of them. And then I move on to the second tier of songs yeah. and, until I get the whole album. So it usually takes me a long time before I start to really say, this is truly my favorite song or this is truly you know not. Mm-hmm. And another thing to mention is like I'm not a big lyrical guy most mm-hmm. of the time. What really catches me is sound, feeling, aesthetic, rhythm, mm-hmm. and, and particularly melody and vocal melody. If it's something I can sing along to, I will gravitate towards it. Um, the lyrics, though, really help <laughs> uh, if they're really good, too. Like uh, that That's what keeps me there. So it's like I stay, I, I kind of get caught by the rhythm and the melody, but I'll stay for the lyrics if they're good. So just for reference on how I'm getting to these conclusions. Yeah. My favorite on uh, the album, I love Natives. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I, hmm. 
which that's like is that the first half of that album this is the second song on the album that's what it okay yeah i was like that's um, pretty early on so. and it just comes right out of the gate it's super intense um like one of the more uh upbeat songs on the album um very aggressive but then the chorus is just like you know mark sings the chorus and it's like pop punk again yeah you know well that's the thing it's like uh mark uh always like comes in and it's like mellow you can compare like if you know anything about synthesizers it's like I always think of Mark as like a sine wave, real smooth, and, yeah. you know, no no bumps. And then like, uh, Tom is just a sawtooth. <laughs> He's just yeah. like, just, just like real yeah. gritty on the ears. Um, and you know, Travis is a square. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, that's it's that sawtoothy kind of like nasally thing. Well, do you remember those memes? And I think it was during Obama's second term. That it would be like, you know, Joe Biden would just be like, you know, out of control. And then Obama would be like, be cool, be cool. (laughs) I kind of feel like that, like that dynamic is kind of like Mark and Tom. Yeah. He mellow, it's like, he's always like the mellow of the band. um, And he brings that. But that's what makes it great is because if you were doing nasally yelling the whole time, Mm -hmm. then you're just kind of going back to Dude Ranch in a way. Yeah. Uh, But having this dichotomy of this relaxing kind of calm moments with mark and then these real tense intense driving moments with tom this kind of stress relaxation kind of like expand release you know or contract kind of thing it's like those that is what really is great for me as a listener because it kind of gives me that dynamic variance absolutely um and of the post hiatus era so it's like 2005 uh forward um after untitled um you know so taking into account nine and california do you think neighborhoods is the most underwhelming no i don't i don't think it is um uh cheshire cat it's like by far like their first album sucks um, I, know, I mean like like in their like after 2005 like if we're looking at those three albums ooh, neighborhoods california nine california uh, California is the weakest one by far because that's the one where they're getting back on their feet after a long time. Yeah. They just started with a new member um, and they're kind of like finding stuff. Don't get me wrong. They got a lot of things right on California, but I don't think it would. I think in 20 years from now, we're not going to be talking about neighborhoods being the forgotten album. We'll be talking about California being the forgotten yeah. album. Well, the thing about California is it de- you definitely have like board. It, it has like those big hits like Bored to Death and She's Out of Her Mind. And that's it. That's yeah. that's literally it. By but the those way. are those are two more hits than neighborhoods has because <laughs> yeah. like nobody. I mean, maybe True. someone knows up all night. True, but, but like as in like a, you know an audiophile or something, you might yeah. end up wanting neighborhoods to be up there. I think. Like, yeah. But neighborhoods really isn't anything that I would say would stand out either, right? Like, yeah. If I had to pick, it's a personal choice to be like I would probably yeah. rather listen to neighborhoods because one, it's a little, it seems fresher in my mind, uh, and I'm kind of bored to death of california at this yeah. point um that's a that was good yeah i know I'm, i've got jokes i don't know <laughs> a lot of people don't know this but i'm like truly funny uh, <laughs> like legally um so yeah um the last question um and i we've you've touched on this a lot um but why do you think that neighborhoods uh, did not achieve the accolades and success of the albums of the late 90s and early 2000s oh yeah 100 percent of what i was talking about earlier yeah cultural shift yeah there was just more it was kind of like you know rock music was getting big in like the 80s you know like the the hair metal rock and things like that right uh but then 
other starts of genres start to take over uh and then you start getting into pop music and boy bands in the 90s um and so like there's always going to be room for rock rock is never going to completely die or go away but there's always going to be these ebbs and flows to culture and music and i just think we were just in one of those periods where rock music wasn't cool. Yeah. It wasn't cool no, to I, be into rock. I remember when I was in college, I really stopped listening to rock. Like, mm-hmm. maybe if you like, the Chili Peppers and the Foo Fighters. But other than that, it was all, like, folk and hip-hop. That's what I listened to in college. Yeah. It was like, you like country, maybe? Yeah. You like, uh, and I would say, like, that's in certain areas of, this, of the country. Uh, would you want to be, like, listening to country? But for me, it was like, if you listen to anything other than, you know, EDM, dubstep, rap... Uh, like party music like there wasn't a lot of people just listening to music it was like i listen to music to party i don't listen to music <laughs> and i was be like what um but it was either harder rock if you it was like very niche cultures like subcultures it's like it wasn't part of the mainstream the mainstream was your pop music your typical radio hits um you know you had your katy perry's things like that um and the only like instrumentation bands like bands with real instruments was like fuck maroon five yeah. uh like mumford and sons uh things Did, like that is maroon five still playing instruments at that point i don't know dude um but it's like and i do remember like there was some times in like early college too like neon trees kind yeah. of come out and you're like oh cool like that's kind of like a band he's got like that interesting kind of like rock star vibe and stuff like that and so the, there was definitely breakout hits mm-hmm. that were like clawing back to getting rock to be in the forefront but, you know, it was like, if you weren't listening to the new Drake album that dropped, it's like, you that that was what it was. It's not right. like, hey, have you listened to the new Blink-182 album? It was like, you still listen to Blink-182? I still get that today. I'll be like, oh, dude, I listened to Sum 41's new stuff when it came out in, like, 2018 or whatever. Um, or Goldfinger. Uh, Goldfinger dropped an album. Should have talked about them, too. That guy in Goldfinger, forgot his name, produced Nine and California. Really? Uh, that's why you can hear, go listen to some Goldfinger stuff. And you'll see all of the similarities of the guy's Goldfinger music and like what he was doing on those albums. But bottom line, it's just a cultural shift. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great point because I, I was reading like even the bands, and then you mentioned them, like both of the bands that I mentioned in the episode, um, that, you know, they retain their popularity to some extent with Fall Out Boy and Paramore, but I think they retain their popularity by straying away from that pop punk sound. Like, didn't like they go through like shifts in their sound? Yeah, I mean... Paramore, their most recent album pretty much solidifies their change, right? Their kind of trajectory has gone completely different. Um, but like even things like Ain't It Fun and um, I forgot that other one, Still Into You. Yeah. Um, those felt not pop punky, right? They were rock, but they were like this kind of subgenre of pop rock. This is where I told you it's like started getting into kind of like the funky side of things where it's like it was dance rock. It was like, oh, something I can kind of bop my head to and feel yeah. good about. Um and Fall Out Boy went in a different direction where they're like, we're just gonna go epic and make sure that we can fill college football stadiums. <laughs> if like you ever went to a college football game in um anywhere between twenty eleven to like twenty nineteen, you heard a Fallout Boy song in one of those stadiums. You probably heard like I forgot what it was, not Heroes or whatever it is, um, some other song, but they played those nonstop. Um, and the only other band in that kind of same thing was like Panic at the Disco, and which was really just Brendan Urie, and he made like a few albums that really made it big uh, and got radio stuff recently, but now he's, he's not even doing it anymore. <laughs> so it's like, 
The cultural shift yeah, are there. Yeah, because Panic at the Disco is done, right? Yeah, he's not doing anything anymore. And some forty one, they just broke up. Too. They just broke up. They're going to finish up their tour, yeah. and then they're um they're done. And I saw them live like two, three years ago, and they were fantastic. They were really good live. Um, so it's sad to see them go, but yeah. it's funny when you talk to people and you're like, yeah, I still listen to Blink One Eighty Two. I still listen to some forty one. Uh, and they're like, oh, those those are still around. You still you still listen to them? They still play? They still tour? And it's like, that's how I know. It's like, well, we're not there yet. You know, it's yeah. like, we're, we're past that. It's like, definitely people know some of the certain bands that are newer. Like, you would talk to some people who are into the scene. They're going to know who people like Neck Deep are. They're going to know people who are like state champs. But if you tell them, you know, you're still listening to these bands, then you'd be like, what? Why? Um, but that's a great, like, barometer for me. It's like, if I can go talk to somebody who I know is not into the scene... And they are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go see them. Or I know I listen to that new album. That's how I know that, like, there's this kind of resurgence happening. When I went and talked to people and they were like, yeah, I listened to the Machine Gun Kelly albums. They were really good. <laughs> and it's like, cool. So you do like pop punk music because that was pretty much just like all Travis Barker on that. <laughs> like, he pretty much produced that album. So it's like the want and thing is there. But I do think that there's like this kind of like connotation of like them being old or like that's middle school music. I don't listen to middle school music anymore. Um, yeah, well, we were hanging out, um, after the show, um, before we met up with y'all at Dark Horse, um, we were hanging out someplace in Virginia Highland anyways, um, uh, and, uh, so just for, just for context for listeners, we were hanging out a couple weeks ago, went to like a, um, a live band karaoke thing, and before that, we, we were at like just getting dinner or whatever, um, and I mentioned like 182, and there was a, uh, somebody was dating, um, uh, a friend of ours, uh, sister, and she, you know, I was, I mentioned like when I was, she's like, oh, I've never heard of that band, and she's like, she's like twenty one, <laughs> and I was like, oh my goodness, yikes. Um, yeah. all right, well, see, that's, anyway, so yeah. that's no, um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, Russell, thank you so much, uh, for coming. No and problem. This was uh, was awesome, and uh, you know, I hope that uh, you can rejoin the podcast in the future. Yeah, when you start doing the 2000s, I'll be able to talk about even more pop punk bands. So, Fair enough, fair enough. All right, man, thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, you too. Thanks, y'all, for listening, and a special thanks to Russell Ramtahal for being a fantastic guest. Have a great rest of your day, and whatever it brings, hopefully music is involved. Again, I'm Dove Brenner, and this is Hot Cakes from a 90s stand. Take care.